as I mentioned in the introduction to our service this morning, that we are going to go a little bit off script from what we have been doing regularly, and that's going through our exposition of John, John's Gospel. And I want to take a little bit of a hiatus from doing that because we're going through, of course, as I said, our new member process. And uh, we had a wonderful time on Friday night uh, working our way through some very, very critical areas of understanding for the process of becoming a formal member uh, of our church. This is all new in terms of a process because this is a new church, certainly nothing being done in perfection, and we're working out all of the details. And so I thought what would be good for us to do over the next several weeks together would be to talk about aspects related to the church. Now, of course, we can't talk about all of them, but what I wanted to do this morning was to talk about church membership, and then next time talk about church ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and then thirdly, church discipline and restoration, and then fourthly and finally, church leadership, what you can expect from us. And so I think this will be good for us. It will prompt us to to go through things in our minds regarding the church, life in the church. In fact, the title of these messages is Life in the Body. Life in the Body. And so we want to talk this morning about church membership. And as we come to the threshold of the inaugural membership time at Thousand Oaks Bible Church, I want to begin by discussing this very, very important subject of why every professing Christian should be a recognized member of his or her local church. I want to delve into this topic underneath this morning, two particular questions, two questions that will occupy us this morning. Number one, is my formally joining a local church really biblical? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Is my formally joining a local church, even this local church, really biblical? That's a good, excellent question, which we'll seek to answer this morning. And then secondly, if this concept of formally joining a church is biblical, then what benefits are there for me in joining a local church, specifically even this local church? So number one, is it biblical, formally joining a church? And number two, if it is biblical, if that case can be proven, then what benefits are there for me in joining? Or what general benefits are there for all of us as we join together in membership at this local church. And frankly, and quite often, I might add, I've been asked by people why they should even join a local church. Now, that has been a continuing question for many, many years of my pastoral ministry. And this is actually a fairly common question which frequently comes to many in spiritual leadership as they attempt to pastor and shepherd God's local church. The question which comes from people, I'm sure, could be phrased in any number of different ways, but the essence of the question is something like this. This is that person talking, and they might say the following, Why should I, as a Christian, formally join as a member of a local church? I mean, if I'm truly redeemed, if I'm regenerate, aren't I already a member of the universal body of Christ? So what need is there for me then to officially join a local church when Christ has already accepted me into his eternal kingdom? So if I'm already in the kingdom 
If I already know I'm going to heaven, if I have the assurance of my salvation, if I know these things about myself and I know upon my death I'm going to be ushered into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, why should I then be formally joined to a local church here as a member? It seems superfluous in so many minds. And I want to try to answer that this morning. And in order to answer this question at least somewhat sufficiently, a number of important points need to be made. And the first one is that there isn't any text, there isn't any Bible verse, there isn't any passage in our New Testaments that says, thou shalt become a member. Okay? So that, that particular verse is not there. If it were, I would read it and we would close in prayer. But that's not the way it goes. But you would be amazed, I think, and hopefully you will be after our time this morning, that there are inferences galore. There is logic uh, aplenty regarding the joining, the the formally submitting, uh, the involvement in a local church. And if we're going to answer this first question, is formally joining a local church biblical, I want to give you five points, five points that ought to prove at least in the time that we have, and there are many, many more ways that we could approach this, but at least five points that answers the question, yes, it is biblical to formally join a local church fellowship. And here's the first one. Confessing Christ as Lord and joining a local church are not synonymous. Confessing Christ as Lord and joining a local church are not synonymous. Synonymous. Now, I don't want to argue against myself this morning because that first point sounds a little bit like that. Why should I join a local church if I've already confessed Jesus Christ as Lord? Well, we need to qualify ourselves and admit and acknowledge right up front that it is true that you will be going to heaven if you repent of your sins, if you place your faith squarely and only in Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you have this great exchange your sins for his righteous life with his taking your sins onto himself on that cross and you confess Jesus as the Lord of your life that you endeavor to follow him and that you believe that he is the only avenue. He is God's Messiah sent from heaven for you so that he might die on your behalf and that you would confess him as Lord and that you would one day stand before God And if God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? Your response is, because I believed, I repented of my sins, and I placed my confidence and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. He died for me. I acknowledge my sin, and I place my hope, my eternity on Christ and Christ alone. And I ask, Father, that you would allow Christ as my Savior, Redeemer, and Lord to be the answer as to why I would be allowed into your heaven. And that gets you there. That acknowledgement, that life, that dependency, that love, uh, that confession of Jesus Christ, that gets you into heaven. But that's still yet future, isn't it? And right now, you and I are on a journey, we're on a pilgrimage, we call the Christian life. And between the time of our confession of Christ, whenever that may have been for you or for me, Whenever we come to that place of confessing Christ and before heaven, we have an opportunity to band together with other Christians so that we might confess Him as Lord in a community, a community of believers. 
But I admit that confessing Christ as Lord and then joining a local church are not to be seen as synonymous. As though, if I join a local church, that means I've become a Christian. No, you become a Christian and then you join the church. That's the way it goes. I may be a part of a church and I may have assumed I was a Christian, but when the gospel came to me in clarity and God opened my eyes, even if I was a churchgoer for many, many years of my life, when the Lord opens my eyes to the truth of my sinful condition and God saves me on the spot, whether I'm a church member or whether I've never darkened the door of a church ever in my life, conversion, being regenerated, being born again, seeing my sin for what it is and clinging to Christ in salvation, that's the point you go to heaven. But before you go to heaven, and if you're going to spend several years on this earth, as we all have done, if we're in Christ before heaven, then we need to be a part of a community of faith. So I'm not saying that confessing Christ and being a Christian is synonymous with churchhood, with being at a church, with involvement in a church. Confessing Christ is the most important thing. I would grant you that. It is true. If someone seeks to join a local church, this does not guarantee that you are a genuine Christian. But in the examination of those who want to join a local church, then they are questioned. They are asked. There is a stipulation. Do they have right doctrine? Are they confessing Christ as Lord? Do they see Him as the master of their life? And if so, they are welcomed into a fellowship, but those two things are not synonymous. It doesn't mean one is crucial, confessing the Lord, and the other is of no importance. Not at all. If you want a priority scale, number one, foremost, at the top of the list, is confessing Christ as Lord, believing in Him, and then you'll be on your way to heaven. And then, upon your believing in Him and your trusting in Him for eternal life, then you want to say to yourself, I want to express my confession of Christ as Lord in the context of fellow believers in the local church. So, confessing Christ as Lord and joining a local church are not synonymous. One, confessing Christ is at the top of that list, and then one leads to another. And that's number two. That's number two in our list. Confessing Christ as Lord and then joining with others who do the same is of great importance to your spiritual life. It doesn't mean the two are synonymous, like number one, but number two, it means that joining a local church is extremely important. It's extremely important. It's not as important as confessing Christ as Lord and being a genuine, bona fide believer in Christ. However, it is very, very important to your spiritual life. Your membership in a local church is important because it is there that you can hear the sound preaching and teaching of God's Word and where you can have corporate worship, just like we experienced. It is there that you will find the fellowship of other Christians who can encourage you to grow spiritually and who will want to hold you accountable to the truth. And within the local church, you'll have a place to minister your spiritual giftedness toward others. I mean, can you imagine someone who says something like this? I confess Christ is Lord. I believe in the gospel, the good news, that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I've put my 
confidence and trust in Him. I've repented of my sins. I've turned from that old way of life. I'm trusting alone in Christ that He is, is working His work of grace in my soul and causing me to change my very being, transformed by His Word. And as a result of all of that, I will have nothing to do with other Christians. Now, if someone were to say such a thing, of course, you who've been a part of a church as a believer, as a genuine believer, would be aghast at such a thing. But do you know that especially in our 21st century sense of things, there are many people who say that very idea? They do. They say, it's so wonderful that I've been saved. It's so glorious that I've been delivered from my sins. But to say that I need to be a part of other Christians in any kind of formal or even informal sense... I just worship God in nature. I just worship God by the radio. I get my teaching from Christian television. And if you do that, that's very sad. Because there's not much on television that's really solid. And, uh, oh, I I just watch or I listen or I'm available uh, whenever the Lord wants to speak to me or occasionally I'll open up my own Bible and I'll look at a few passages, sort of give me a pep talk for the day. You know, uh, a verse a day keeps the devil away. And I'll do everything I can to try to um, make it on my own in this Christian life. And that is, unfortunately, the thesis of many, many, many people. And that's where they often go very astray. Why? Because when you look at your Bibles, when you look at, for, in- for instance, 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, And 1 Peter 4, when they talk about spiritual giftedness, spiritual ministries, spiritual abilities in the body, various gifts and ministries, it is for the purpose of contributing to each other's needs. There's no sense, or should there be, of a lone ranger Christianity. No sense of me being able to pull myself up by my own spiritual bootstraps and live as a lone ranger this Christian life. You know, if you, you put a bunch of logs on a fire, they burn brightly, but when you take one of those logs away, what happens to that log? The fire quickly goes out. Why? Because we as logs, we need each other. Isn't that what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 when he says, we are being built together as a spiritual house. And each one of these living stones represents you and it represents me. And we are together being built up as a spiritual house for Jesus Christ. That's what Peter says. That's the analogy that he gives. There's really no sense of a person who is not fellowshipping with other believers. Now, it can be a challenge if, for instance, you're a missionary and you go to a foreign country and you are ministering in that context and you're the one who's actually blazing a trail and you're starting a local church or you're attempting to evangelize others or maybe there's someone who is so bedridden, uh, paralyzed, physically speaking, that they're unable to do what you and I enjoy with our abled bodies. Yes, there are some exceptions to that in the sense that they are unable to do what you and I regularly enjoy. But it's not because of their decision. It's not because of their choice. The, The normal means, the normal idea is conversion first, and then incorporation into the body of Christ through a local expression we call the church. That's the normal means, and it's of great importance 
to all our spiritual lives to grow and to flourish as Christians who are worshiping together, praying together, giving together, ministering our gifts with and to one another. And you know, there are other passages which implicitly scream out at us in this regard. Why don't you look at your Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want to show you this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This passage, along with so many others, even though our time is so limited, would make no sense to us if we understood it apart from some measure of a community of believers in a local church context who had formerly come together as a group of professing Christians to say Christ as Lord. Notice the authority, not just apostolically in Paul, but the authority that he invests in the church in Corinth. There must have been some formal membership here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says in verse 1, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, you being plural, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, Gentiles. For a man has his father's wife. A relationship undoubtedly sexually with his stepmother. And Paul says in verse 2, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. You say, what is implied by that? That they were together. They were in a group. They were in a body, a body of believers. And someone was sinning in such a way that apparently they were not dealing with this so-called brother. And Paul says, here's what you as a body, as a church, as a group of believers ought to do. This person should be removed among you. He says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, that is a, a sinful leaven, actually leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. He even says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he qualifies himself, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. In other words, that's what the world does, but that's what they're doing out there inside in the group of God's people, sexual sinners and greedy and swindlers and idolaters should not be tolerated because that's what the world does and we're not of the world, we're the church and our lives should be different. He even says in verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, that means brother in Christ, a, a Christian, a, a professing person who says Christ is Lord, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not swindler, not to even eat with such a one. The idea of table fellowship, as though nothing were going on. We're just a bunch of Christians who are getting together and we're worshiping together and we're fellowshipping together and we're eating together. He says, no, verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. Now, as I said, this passage, this chapter, would make little sense unless there was a formal acknowledgement of who's on the inside the church, believers, Christians, and those who are on the outside, the world, described in these ways. And someone is inside the church and he's doing what outside the church folks are doing 
And Paul says, it ought not to be. And apparently you're arrogant about it. You're allowing this. In some ways, by not dealing with it, you're encouraging such a thing to occur. And his point implicitly, of course, is if in fact this is happening inside the church, then how different is this from the world outside? So there had to be some kind of designation about who are the people who are inside the fellowship and those who are outside. They had to be recognized. They had to be known. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and if this is the same man, and we might assume that he is, he's repented. Maybe the Corinthians had heard and then heeded Paul's message that this particular man needed to be dealt with and apparently he was confronted and at some point in a later letter, this being 2 Corinthians, Paul is now going to admonish them because they've swung apparently to the opposite pole. Look at verse 5. He says, now, if anyone has caused pain, and we assume by that he means this man who was doing something so flagrantly in the fellowship that you were heretofore being arrogant in not dealing with, well, apparently you did deal with it, and he caused pain. He has caused it to, not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you, because it was happening in your midst. And then he says, in essence, this man has repented. He, he stopped the immorality. Verse 6, For such a one, if it is indeed referring to this man, this punishment by the majority is what? It's enough. It's sufficient. So this group of people, the Corinthian believers, inside the fellowship, and of course, as you know, they weren't in big buildings like, like we have in, in our 21st century context. They were probably in house churches, in homes, having smaller venues, and this letter is being circulated. And Paul is saying, this man was confronted. You heeded my last letter. He's repented. And now it seems as though you are being unforgiving toward him. And he says, stop. If he has confessed his sin, if he has repented and turned from that sin, and if he's now living in a pattern of sexual purity and not sexual sin, then rather you should forgive him. And he says, So, verse 7, you should rather turn to forgive him and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. You say, why do you bring this up? Because there is, my friends, a clear distinction between that which goes on in the outside world, outside the confines of the local church, and that which should occur inside. And even when sin does occur on the inside, there's a confrontation, there's a loving admonishment. You don't ignore it on the one hand, and then when someone repents, you don't experience a lack of love and you don't refuse to forgive you actually warn and you admonish and you instruct and when they get it when they hear it when the spirit of God is working on their lives and they repent of their sin then you forgive them you, you wrap your arms of love around them in essence because the person has returned and they've repented you throw a party for them you say this one has come home this one now is distinguished from that which happens in the world. You say, what's the point with regard to church membership? How would you ever do this if there was no formal association? 
How would you ever do this if there was no formal membership? How could you? I mean, if people just came in willy-nilly and they just uh, came in and left on their own accord and you didn't know exactly who was there from Sunday to Sunday, you didn't know who the church constituted was, there was no formal membership, uh, there was no activity for the leaders to know what the members were doing, how would you even have any structure whatsoever if there wasn't some structure here where Paul says sufficient is the affliction of the pain by the majority? Who's the majority? The professing believers, the, one who are, the ones who were organized, the ones who were there, the ones who have signed up, the ones who have committed, the ones who have submitted themselves to membership. You say, well, boy, that really takes us to the place where we understand this. Confessing Christ as Lord is number one. It's absolutely, unequivocally important. It's critical in order to get to heaven. And secondly, Maybe I thought of church membership as so far down from this priority, number one, that I dismissed it out of hand. But now I'm seeing it's actually far more important than I thought. It's very, very important, critically important for your spiritual life in so many more ways than even just these examples. Let's go on. Number three. Number three. Do you know that it appears that the early church of the first century had some sort of formal membership? They did, because they knew who had a vital part with them and they knew who did not. Let me say, state that again. It appears in the early church of the first century that they had some kind of formal membership because they knew who were a part of them, those people who were a part of them, and those who were not. Now, it's implied already, as I said, here in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2, but let me show you even the formal sense of this. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. I don't know if they did actual physical counts, but I'm assuming they did based on a couple of these passages where they actually seemed to know by numerical value who was in and who was not, who was being saved and who were not. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers... The company of persons was in all about how many? 120. About 120. How did they know? They counted. They counted. Now, this is not like David and the census of the Old Testament, right? It's not that. This is just simply the church trying to determine how many among them were following Christ as Lord. And this says about 120. Look at chapter 2. Verse 41, Peter preaches, verse 40, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. How did they know that? Because they had some level of formality to this. They, They counted, they knew And the Holy Spirit was confirming the numbers and allowing then Dr. Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, to actually put inscripturated in the Word of God that there were about 3,000 souls. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the Word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000 which means that if most of them were married, then you can double that amount, and then you can can see that there were a growing number of people and somebody was keeping count. 
somebody was seeing exactly how many people were being added to the church. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, increasing in number, and now they're keeping account of people because there are some widows who are being left out in their needs, in their food needs. The Hebrews rose up, uh, the Hellenists, and they were having a debate, a bickering among themselves because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so they actually counted through a number of men to serve as helpers who would begin to relieve the apostles so that the apostles could be involved in the apostolic teaching, doctrine, and prayer. And then these men of good faith, including, by the way, Stephen among them, would be able then to relieve these brothers so that those brothers could be involved in the word and prayer. And these kind of proto-deacons, those who would be serving... And these proto-deacons then would ultimately have the opportunity to minister to these widows as those who had need. You know, there's another list. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. There's a list that's given in 1 Timothy chapter 5 about widows, just as we saw here in Acts 6. In chapter 5, it had apparently become so codified that in this context, maybe the church at Ephesus even, because Timothy was the pastor of the church at Ephesus, and in 1 Timothy 5.9, it says, let a widow be enrolled, that is, on the list. Some of your translations may even say, be put on the list if she is not less than 60 years of age, not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, a, a, a one-man woman, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse, verse 11, to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. So, if you've got a a, a woman who's been widowed, her husband has died, She apparently, according to the first part of 1 Timothy 5, does not have the financial help by her own immediate family, and she's coming to the the church and saying, I need help. I'm indigent. And so they had some kind of record where they actually recorded not only their names, but then they said, if she's not less than 60 years old, if she's done these ministry things, if she's been proven proven capable, proven helpful, proven faithful, proven godly, then by all means we're going to put her on a list and when those widows are on that list, we're going to care for them. They don't have financial means by their family. They don't have the opportunity to be cared for. They have needs. They've been faithful. They've served. And we're going to put them on a list. You say, how does that relate to membership? These were the widows who were not less than 60 years of age who were on a list as as a formal opportunity to minister to them. There's a list there. There's opportunity to see that they, in fact, in the church, had organization. They had formality. They had lists. They knew who they were. They had counts. This is just a 
a way of obviously affirming the idea that church membership's not some kind of a strange concept in which, look, I just believe in Jesus as Lord and I'm going to go to heaven and I went to this church last week and I went to some other church and, I, oh, I like the music at this other place and I really like the children's deal at this place. And, boy, that small group Bible study, in fact, I, I attend about six different churches. It's a wonderful thing. And I take the best out of everybody. And, you know, that's kind of a consumerist mentality that says I'm uh, multiplying myself and yet nobody is getting all of me. And that's a problem. Church membership is the most prudent way to ensure that you yourself are, the whole of you, the totality of you, are being shepherded, being cared for, held accountable, where you can be guided. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. This is another passage that's very important in this regard. In Hebrews 13, wonderful instruction from the writer to Hebrews. And here's what he says in verse 7. Remember your leaders, Hebrews 13, 7. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Well, how does that best occur? Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Do you know how senseless this would be if someone, using the example that I just used, someone who's, who's flip-flopping around for three, four, five, six churches, I like this here, I like this over there, how could anybody hold that person accountable? when they're not showing up half the time, or even less than half the time. This is the idea of a group of people submitting themselves, joining together as a body of believers in a local expression, a local church, and they have leaders, and when they see these leaders every Sunday of their lives, when they are fellowshipping with them through the week, when they are being ministered to by those leaders, and those leaders then get into those lives, they find out what's going on, they affirm the good things, they warn about the bad things, and in that interplay of relationship, you can then watch the leader's faith, you can watch his conduct, and it says in verse 7 of Hebrews 13, imitate that conduct, and then in verse 17, obey those leaders, submit to them, you'll have joy in doing so, because they're going to give an account one day because they're keep, keeping watch over your souls and let them do this with joy. How could that occur unless there was some kind of formality about the membership of a local church? And by the way, I'm not talking about signing uh, a document that says you're a member. Uh, there may need to be the specificity of those who are actually signing something, but I'm not talking about that. That's, that's the formality of it. I'm talking about living, breathing human beings who are gathering together as the body of Christ in a local church because they love one another, they care for one another, they're submitting to their leaders. It's, it's not about just signing a card. It's not a, just about doing a, a class. It's actually doing those things for the purpose of entrance, of committal, of submission, and of joy. That's what it says. By the way, 1 Corinthians 14 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we don't have time to look there, but if you look at verses 23, 4, and 5, you're going to find this. Very interesting. You may not have thought of this. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is giving them instruction. Of course, there's a lot going on in the Corinthian church, including the misuse of their spiritual gifts, uh, what they're doing in the services, and how the misuse of those gifts is actually disrupting the service. 
And Paul gives them some very practical things. You know, of course, he says, do everything decently and in order. And one of the things he says, which I find very, very fascinating, is this. He says, what happens if you're doing these ecstatic things in the service, like tongues without interpretation of tongues, and and somebody's uh, doing these kind of charismatic things, and uh, people are all watching. And then he says this, and an unbeliever walks in. Now, that is fascinating to me. How, does they, how do they know that an unbeliever walks in? You know how they know? Because believers are the ones who are in there in the first place. And when somebody else walks in who they know is not a believer, from their community, from their area, probably someone just down the street who's walked in unawares. Remember, it's probably a, like a house church. It's probably small. And when you have people who are there Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, you get to know who the believers are, right? And somebody comes in that little house church and everybody knows it's an unbeliever. And when they know it's an unbeliever and he sees all of this ecstatic things going on and he says to himself, you people are truly weird. You're just weird. I don't know what's going on here. And Paul's whole, whole case is, but if you prophesy, if you preach the Word of God, if you set in context the Word as it is properly known, if it is checked, if it is bona fide truth, and when the preaching is going on, not all of these other things, when the preaching is going on, and when God's Word is upheld, then what happens? then it might very well be that this unbeliever falls on his face and he says, surely God is in this place. How do you know that? Because there was a formality about church membership. There was a formality about God teaching and nurturing through the believers in that place. They knew who each other were. It wasn't just a grab bag of uh, nice people who you didn't know who those people were. We know who the believers are and we know who the unbelievers are. That's the point. Number four. Number four. It appears that local churches in different cities of the first century were in communication with each other. Yes. Did you realize that? It appears that local churches in different cities of the first century were in communication about each other. They sent letters of commendation to other fellowships. Letters of commendation. Look at Acts chapter 15. You'll see this. Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas are being commended according to Acts chapter 15. Verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following, what? Letter. They sent a letter commending these brothers. Well, how could they send a letter commending some brothers? They had to know them. They had to know their character. They had to know their ministries. They had to know what their gifts were which meant that took time and effort to know these brothers. You say, well, it's Paul and Barnabas. Yes, but what do we know about Barsabbas? He had to be known. And there was a letter that was sent. And this letter was going out to others, like, for instance, Antioch, saying these are good men. These are strong believers. These are gifted and godly men. 
Look at Acts chapter 28. Chapter 28. There's a question about Paul. And in Acts 28:21, some of those who are there say, and they said to him, to Paul, we have received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. That implies, of course, that letters of commendation were being sent around from place to place saying, these are good brothers. Undoubtedly, probably letters that also affirm the doctrinal consistency of these men. There was a formal process of letters going out probably signed by others in spiritual leadership and people were were known in that context. Paul's scripture letters were being distributed. So letters of commendation were also being distributed, commending Christians to other fellowships. 1 Corinthians 16.3 does Paul certain letters of of envoy. Um, Romans 16. These are, these are passages where even though Paul says to the Corinthians, you are, you are not physical letters, you are letters written on my heart. But there were other letters, physical letters, affirming bona fide members of local congregations. And people had to sit down and write letters. They had to affirm others. And again, I'm not talking about just filling out paperwork on somebody so that, you know, do you have your papers now, this is a sense of, I affirm you. We, we love this brother. We're sending him to you for ministry purposes. You see, it's much more formal than maybe we give it credit for, even if you examine some of these passages. Number five. Number five. I think following the early church, formal membership today is very wise, very prudent. It's very wise and very prudent. Why do I say that? Well, because... If, in fact, false doctrine, false teachers run amok, and they do, then it is very wise and very prudent for us not to just simply allow anybody to come in who is unexamined, who might say, I think I have some uh, spiritual gifts to teach. I think uh, I want to teach a Bible study. Uh, uh, Would you let me... uh, preach in the pulpit and and immediately someone would say well look there's a big difference between someone coming in and teaching a bible study and then letting him come up and actually address the congregation in a pulpit well both of them are important both of them are critical you wouldn't want somebody just willy-nilly teaching a bible study who you didn't know if someone wasn't a member of the local church and they came and and they said uh, i commend myself to you you might say in the first century since do you have any letters do you have any recommendations from others that we love and trust and know Uh, No, I don't. Well, we might want to give you some some time, but here's what we'll do. We'll examine you. We'll ask you about your doctrine. We'll spend some time examining you about your life, uh, uh, about your testimony. I mean, it it can be off-putting. It can be daunting for someone to have to give a testimony about themselves, of their conversion, about how God's worked in their life. But do you know, it's actually something that's very prudent and very wise because... False doctrine abounds. And it's not as though we're always questioning and we're always assuming the worst. No, not at all. But we all have to be on our guard. You remember in Acts 20, Paul was telling the elders of the church of Ephesus, the very 
uh, letter that we're studying on Sunday nights. And Paul says to these very elders, seeing them presumably for the very last time, he says, I want to tell you, there are going to be two major dangers that are going to be coming up. And he says, number one, he says, they're going to be ravenous wolves who will not spare the flock and they'll be trying to come into your midst and they'll try to teach false doctrine. He says, watch out for them. And I'm sure everybody in that group were saying to themselves, yes, you're right, Paul. We need to be on guard of them. And then he says something most interesting and most sad. He said, and from among your own selves will men rise up to draw away the disciples after them. And can you imagine? They're on the island of Miletus and there is this group of of Ephesian elders and Paul will see them for the last time and it says that they repeatedly kissed him and they hugged him on his neck which meant that they were in close proximity and they were probably all holding hands because they were so uh, discouraged that they would see Paul potentially for the last time. And so can you imagine? They're all holding hands. They're probably in a small group and Paul then says, and some from among your own selves will rise up and they'll try to draw away the disciples after them. Watch for those men. I warn you. Can you imagine? They're probably looking at each other and saying, is it you? Is it you? Hopefully it's not me. Is he talking about somebody in the future? Or is he talking about somebody here and now? How can we guard against such things? By having formality. By having a process. By knowing who the believers are. By watching their lives. By seeing and hearing their testimonies. By hearing them teach. By knowing what they believe. And you can't do that if you don't have a group, a process, a formality of knowing and shepherding believers. This is so important. Now, I may not have convinced you, but at least I've put you on the road of saying maybe there's a lot more to think about this than just I can be a Christian without being a member of a local church. Here's another idea. Okay, let's say I am convinced. And I do believe that church membership is vital. It's important. What's in it for me? I mean, really, ultimately. I I know I'm supposed to look to others and minister to them, but I also want to be ministered to. What's in it for me? What, what, What can the Lord do for me? What are the benefits of this biblical church membership for me? Let me give you five very, very quick things. You ready? You could probably just even write them down in a phrase. Here's the first one. Do you realize that the benefit for you are all the one another's of the New Testament? All the one another's. Oh, I wish we had time to actually even read them off, to, to read the list. Without duplicates, without duplicates like love one another, which is mentioned at least five or eight times in the New Testament, did you know that there are 45 one another's of the New Testament? 45 of them. Either this is who we are with one another or this is what we're supposed to do with or for one another. So it's either describing who we are as a body or it's describing what we do to the body. Forty-five of them. It's amazing. That's, that's what you get when you come in and you're formally a part of the body. You get everybody who is wanting to minister to you and you will want to do the same for them. This is the life of the body. Number two, number two, joining a local church is a way for you to to be nurtured and to practice your spiritual giftedness, your ministry, how God has shaped you, what God is doing in your life, how he has molded you uniquely more than anybody else. You're like a, a spiritual snowflake 
I didn't say flake. I said spiritual snowflake. Just completely unique. Completely unique. There's no one else just like you who can contribute like no one else to what you can contribute to the body. It's a wonderful thing that you can be benefited and that you can benefit others. Number three, and, and we do need to say this, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but as you see the day drawing near, as you know the day is coming, the day of Christ's return, the day of judgment, the day of evaluation, when you know that, it says, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves as is the habit of some. Yes, there's even a, a kind of warning here that says, you know, if someone's not willing to commit themselves to the body in, in fairly good order, fair regularity of their attendance, and if they are spotty at best, or you, you, you hardly see them, even, by the way, if it's someone who's written their name down, who has gone through the process of formal membership, but they are spotty at best, they seem not to be around, they seem even when they're here to be gone more than they're here. And the writer to Hebrews says it's a very serious thing. And you know why? Because it may signal this. It may signal that this person is shrinking back from his relationship with Christ. It may be that this person really isn't a genuine believer. And they've begun to apostatize. They've shrunk back. You know, in the book of Hebrews, there is a sense to that phrase, shrinking back, for those who go right up to the very portal of seeing Christ for who He is, Lord of all, and seeing that His death on the cross avails for sinners like you and me, and they come right up to that, and that may even mean that they come to church, they sing songs, they give money, they pray, and then they begin to peter out. They begin to flake out. Why? Because the cares of this world choke out the good seed. And people begin to, to miss, and they miss quite regularly. And then when you go out to try to seek the one of the 99, and they say, no, I'm just, just tired. I, I don't know that I want to do this every single Sunday. And then they start missing, and they start missing, and they draw away from the fellowship. And this is that warning of Hebrews 10 that says, don't do that because if that log goes out from the other logs of the fire, the fire can quickly go out. There's a, there's a warning here. Number four, number four, the spiritual benefit of your joining a local church is your opportunity to participate in baptism in the Lord's Supper. That is so vital. You say, well, I've already been baptized. How about your rejoicing with those who will be baptized in the future? Spurring them on, encouraging them, saying, boy, way to go. Thanks for taking that step. And you know, for someone who might be giving their testimony in the waters of baptism, we're going to have our first ever baptism on, uh, on April 26th. It can be a daunting experience. It can, be, it can be very, very stressful. It can be very pressurized because people aren't used to speaking up front. People, people will, oh, what if I say the wrong thing? Or, you know, I, I want to give my testimony. I want to proclaim Christ and, and I want to be baptized and I know I need to be baptized, but I need the encouragement of other believers. And that's right, you do. And that's the whole point. It's not just for your own baptism, it's for theirs. And the Lord's Supper, we're going to do it 
uh, next Lord's Day evening. And that's an opportunity for all of us to come together, not just the Sunday morning crowd, but also the Sunday night crowd, so that when we come, we're rejoicing and proclaiming the Lord's death when he comes. Now, there may be physical reasons why people can't come, and those, of course, are things that are very understandable. But in the main, in the whole, it's the concept of I want to be together with God's people to rejoice in his ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And number five, and finally, in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. How can you do that if you're not a part of the church? You say, well, I could just come whenever I want. I can just do whatever I need to. But you know, often with that kind of mentality, when you get into trouble, when you've got those acute trials and tests, then you come and you say, I need somebody. I need help. And you know, when you're in that condition, help is on the way. But when somebody else is in that condition, you ought to be saying to yourself, help is on the way from me to you. I want to come. I want to minister to you. I want to pray with you. I want to drive over to your place because I know you're going through it and I know you've got this physical illness that's not allowing you to come. I want to pray with you. My wife and I just had the wonderful opportunity to pray with Mr. Bob Primus. Glory, I see you. This is, this is a privilege. This is a, an honorable privilege to go and pray with someone who's ill and who's going through a dark, dark time physically. And this is your opportunity when you come to church to hear of that brother and to hear of the challenge and to hear of the, the, the physical tests that are going on in a, another brother's life. This is an opportunity for the whole church to come together and pray, to weep with those who, we, who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. This is, this is our grand privilege. And I, I pray that this morning's message and the ones that will come over the next couple of Sundays will spur all of us on to say, I need to get involved. I need to serve. We have so many needs. We've got needs in children's ministry. We've got needs all over the place. And we want to ask you to become involved to work in formal membership, banding together with us for the glory of God and the good of this church. Will you do that? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that this kind of message would not be something that someone in their own heart dismisses or puts away from their conscious thoughts because either they've got a different perspective or they haven't regularly been a part of a local church. Lord, I pray that these things will ruminate in our minds so that we will be those who truly want to band together, join with each other for the prospects of what lies ahead for Thousand Oaks Bible Church. Lord, for those who are visitors with us today, may they take their messages back to their local churches that membership, while it isn't salvation, is certainly as critical upon the very basis of your salvation to become involved and to give of your life and ministry for others and for their sake. And in turn, you will be ably ministered unto. Lord, thank you for our time. And even as Bob, Bob comes, Parker, we pray that you would encourage our hearts with what's happening in a, in a world around us that is so needy and desperate. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.